This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hi, everyone, and this is Dr. Karen, and this is episode 12 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I sit down with writer and speaker Dr. Kate Brown to talk about the stories that we are told in the media that we consume. Dr. Brown has so many different things that she's done that it would be impossible for me to list all of them in this intro, but I'll list a couple. A lot of her work focuses on body positivity, self-acceptance, and awareness of how we can make things more inclusive. She currently works for Hey Kiddo, a coaching subscription delivered via text that is designed to build powerful communication habits around challenging topics such as self-esteem, stress, relationships, resilience, and disappointment. I'm reading directly from their website. She also did a TEDx talk called How I Found Real Fitness Inspiration, Saying No to Fitspo. She also wrote an article for Runner's World magazine titled What Brittany Runs a Marathon Gets Wrong About Running While Fat. If you have a child who is involved in youth sports or if you are involved in youth sports or really any youth activities in general that involve planning activities for kids, then this is a must listen. I was really looking forward to this conversation because she has spent a ton of time studying the narratives that we are told 
in advertising, in the media that we are looking at on social media, print advertising, all the different things that we are exposed to on a day-to-day basis. And she shares a lot about how the stories that she learned growing up impacted what she believed about herself, what she believed she was capable of, and how that has inspired her to do the work that she is doing now in the area of body positivity and how that impacts the way that she parents her own child. So if you are someone who cares about helping kids to develop a positive self-image and challenging some of the stories that we're told in society about who should and shouldn't be participating in certain sports, what you can and can't do depending on how you look, how your body looks, where you're from. So we get into all of that in this conversation. If you have a child who is growing up in the world today, I know you'll find it extremely valuable. Before we get going in the episode, I wanted to share that I have a brand new resource for parents who want to help their kids become more independent with things like chores and homework. One of the things that has come up very often this year is figuring out how to support kids in getting all of their work done, which has been huge this year with remote learning, probably more so than most years. I know a lot of parents just feel like the missing assignments are piling up. It's hard to get kids motivated and on task when it comes to doing homework independently at home. So with the Time Study Journal, I actually walk through how you can help your child if they tend to procrastinate, avoid work, or if they just feel really overwhelmed with their homework and have a hard time putting it all together and managing deadlines. To check that out, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal and check it out. So this is a simple tool that you can use to walk through a strategy that takes about 10 to 15 minutes a day that is going to help build the time management and organization skills your kids need to be independent and successful. So just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal to check it out. So now let's get into the interview with Dr. Kate Brown. Today I am joined by Kate Brown, a writer and speaker. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Karen. You're very welcome. So before we get going, Let's just start off with your elevator pitch. So who are you and what do you do? Ooh, what a great way to practice this. So yeah, I'm Kate and I'm a writer and speaker. I do lots of different things, but my writing and speaking generally focuses on autobiographical storytelling and digital media. So that means I write a lot about how body images portrayed on TV. And I, my first book uh, came out last year about the Golden Girls, the TV show. And so I do a lot of writing about age and body image and, and that sort of thing. And I do a little bit of writing for um, kids, parenting, parenting and educational content for kids. And again, to, you know, kind of delivering that through a digital method through the internet um, to really connect people. Wonderful. So 
and you're you're a mom also as well. I am. My son just turned eight. Obviously, I am definitely going to ask you about the Golden Girls book. We can't really <laughs> move on until we discuss the Golden Girls. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a pet project of mine. I think a lot of the things that I do and sort of the philosophy that I live by generally is to say yes to adventure. And I got, had an opportunity to, I was at a, a conference. I'm, I'm an academic by, by trade and training. And I was at a conference and there's a series of books and they were about TV shows. And I said, oh, where's your one about the Golden Girls? I just assumed they would have one because uh, I wanted to buy the book. And they said, oh, we don't have one. Oh, could I write it? And six years later, I did. I had to finish my PhD first. That was kind of the, the care yeah. that I strung out for myself to finish. So what is it about? It is the first academic book on the Golden Girls. And it basically, you know, I think everybody who has been around television, Golden Girls uh, started in 1985 and it's been running in syndication almost at the exact same time. So I didn't actually grow up watching any of the shows live on TV. I always caught a recording and they've yeah. just always been with us. So even if you've never seen an episode of the show, you kind of have an idea that it's about these four women who live in Miami and there's the funny one and the dumb one and the ugly one and, and the old lady, of course, Sophia. But my book takes each of those characters and says, so what, what are these characters really about? Why are they funny? Why do they uh, function the way they do in the show? And I found through these patterns, because that's what I do as a, as a rhetorician is look for patterns in writing. Um, I noticed that they were at their funniest when they were they were playing against that type. So for example, the ugly one is actually very self-confident and secure. And she can do that because she's not trying to be the same kind of woman as all of the hyper-feminine women. So just making those observations was an interesting thing to do. And I wrote it for people who love the show and scholars of television who don't really take the show seriously because it's so popular and kind of fluffy. Yeah. I mean, and, and anybody, I think anybody our age at least knows what the show was. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, somebody I just, in your family watched it. <laughs> um, yeah. Or somebody in your family decided to go as the Golden Girls with a group of their friends for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's never really been tried again. They haven't really done that for women unrelated, but living together kind of thing. So it's it's really special. And I hope that as people read it it brings back some fond memories and you know just just a fun thing to read so there's a reviewer called it a slim tome yeah (laughs) it is it's good afternoon rainy day reading (laughs) that is kind of interesting how they have the whole the archetypes and how that still plays out sometimes you can just very easily identify them okay so I wanted to talk a little bit about, I'm curious to talk about your dissertation research. What were you studying for your dissertation? It's actually, it seems like it's unrelated what I was studying and the Golden Girls book, but it's actually pretty similar. It's more about those archetypes and more about the storytelling patterns that I was seeing. And specifically, I was looking at weight loss stories. So the, again, something most people are very familiar with the before and after the, I lost weight and now my life is really great. And the, again, noticing those patterns. So where I found those stories was in every conceivable piece of media, you know, yeah. TV shows, advertisements, the internets, movies, I mean, and kids shows for sure. Yeah. And 
what uh, my question was, what is the work that these stories are doing in people's everyday lives? And I think that if you've ever dieted or if you've known anyone who's dieted, there's a lot of storytelling that goes into that. I've heard the story so many times where people lose weight and they get healthy and they're happier and they're, you know, their lives are so much better. If I do that, then my life is going to get better too. So I just really, I, I broke down those, those patterns, the archetypes, the characters, um, the way that in order for, if any of your listeners are familiar with the hero's journey mm-hmm. and you go, you know, you go through the trials and tribulations and come home change the call to adventure thing, right? There is a part where the hero comes back changed. They have to leave the person that they were so that they can become a new kind of person. And that's the storytelling trope, that narrative that we get in before and after stories, which means that the hero and the villain of those stories is the same person. Yeah. And so you have to set up yourself as evil or gluttonous or lazy or, you know, all these negative qualities so that you can become the happier person at the end. And if we only tell the story of our bodies and our body size that way, um, it's hard to tell any kind of new story that might better represent our experiences moving through the world. So you have to start off telling yourself the story that you're broken, there's something wrong with you in order for you to go through that transformation instead of accepting yourself, doing what you can to reach whatever goal or improve yourself, but you have to start off broken in order to be fixed. Yes, exactly. And we see these kinds of stories, the before and afters in lots of different things. I was thinking of the example of, you know, if you think about eating and exercising and you know, taking care of your emotional health is just self-care that we should probably be doing regularly anyway. It's not that exciting, you know, brushing your teeth. I'm not going to do a big Instagram story about how (laughs) I woke up one morning and I brushed my teeth and now I'm a better person. We just have this idea that these particular things are going to do it. But I I, I saw some like the braces commercials, they kind of do that or, or any of the teeth whitening. They're like, this is my smile before. And this is what it is after we need that drama to elevate a regular self-care care practice into something that means something about who we are and, and who we're going to be in the world. It mm-hmm. takes on so much more than what it actually is. Yeah. And the reason that I thought this would be an interesting conversation for the show is because nowadays kids have access to technology and Maybe we got it when we were watching TV or reading the newspaper or magazines, but now they get these messages all the time from an early age because you can get a phone and get an Instagram account and or a Facebook account or whatever, and they're getting it way earlier than we ever got it and in much <laughs> a much higher intensity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even if we think about the difference between fictional storytelling and autobiography. So autobiography is self-life writing. It's the writing we do about ourselves. Biography is writing that we do about other people. So you see a lot of biography on an autobiography on social media. It's people mm-hmm. talking about themselves and others. What I find really interesting about that kind of storytelling is that there's this, um, it's kind of a contract. We don't really say it out loud, but it's when you see something on social media, you assume it's true. Like there's, there's no separation of the framing of the story or how many takes did that picture 
require before you got the right one to post. And it's not just a snapshot of somebody's everyday life. It's a story that they're telling. You have to make particular choices about how you're going to tell the story. Well, my son, I said, he's eight, right? He loves YouTube just weird YouTube videos and Mm -hmm. he watches them all the time. They kind of drive me nuts, but I've noticed that when he watches a video because they're real people, he'll come to me and say, Hey, did you know that sharks don't lay eggs or something like that? (laughs) Wildly. I don't know. Do sharks? I I think they do. They're fish, right? (laughs) But he'll tell me some fact that's not an actual fact and they'll say no I don't, how do you know that do you think that's true well I saw it on YouTube yeah I, I saw it there so that there's no not a lot of critical thinking for kids especially in that you know elementary school age to know that is this a fictional story or um, something that's real life based so that gets even more complicated when they're coming to you and with facts putting air quote facts right. um, it's hard to to, as a parent, I found to say, no, that's not true. You need to use your critical thinking skills. <laughs> not really, Or not consider really the source you. of where did you get this? How do you know that this person did their research and knows what they're talking about? <laughs> yeah. And why would they have any reason to doubt what someone who looks like a friend on YouTube is telling them? Why would they, why would they lie? I think my son said that to me. It's like, no, it has to be true because why would they lie? What I have seen more, um, Olivia, she's in sixth grade this year. So obviously that's, you know, they're all interested in makeup and things like that, which I was interested in makeup when I was in sixth grade, you know, and there's all of these TikTokers and Instagram influencers that do those before and after things. And then there's all the filters that they can put on them. Or it's, oh, well, this face wash is the best because it's dermatologist recommended. And it's like, do you like recommended by an actual dermatologist that told you or recommended by a TikToker that said it's dermatologist recommended? We have those conversations all the time. And, And that's the other thing is that understanding that a lot of those influencers are promoting something that they're being paid to promote, which doesn't automatically mean that it's bad or unethical, but you don't know. (laughs) Right. And sometimes it's just something they want to promote. Like I'm going to use this particular makeup palette because I want Smashbox to sponsor me or something like that. Yeah. It's it's aspirational. It's not and it. And I love the example of those tutorials because that's very much a, you know, I woke up like this kind of thing. You're actually seeing the transformation of someone before and I don't know if it's maybe there are videos or creators that that do a like look how gross I was and now I'm beautiful. Oh yeah, with, with the makeup. makeup before and after. Yeah, there's a ton of those. They do it. And I mean, they target all ages. They target, you know, older, you know, people who are mm-hmm. adults first and now obviously kids are getting into that as well. Yeah. I mean, I learned to do my eyeshadow from the back of the CoverGirl palette, you know, where it's got the three areas. <laughs> yeah, me too. Two. So I oh, watch my. these stories and like, and I do even, you know, I'm an adult, but I watch these young people on YouTube. How do they do it? And, I, and then I feel bad about myself that I can't figure out how to wing my eyeliner the right way on both sides. It's just criminal. I gave up on that a long time ago, but <laughs> that's probably not even the style. I don't even. Yeah. I mean, I remember thinking back to myself or in, you know, earlier this year where it was like, wow, why, do, why am I feeling so mopey today? And it's, oh, what have I been doing? I've been scrolling Instagram and seeing everybody's selfies of their lives that may or may not even really be their lives. And so 
we have those conversations a lot where it's all right, where are you getting your information? And well, and I'm I'm a writer, you know, we're not immune from imposter syndrome at all. Right. And I've actually had to put a limit in my calendar that I do not go on Twitter on Mondays because Mondays are the days that I feel most motivated to work and pitch and do Mm -hmm. whatever I'm supposed to do as a writer. And if I'm on Twitter for any length of time, all it takes is one book announcement or, you know, some, somebody's got a new article out that I wanted to write or something like that. It tanks my whole day. And we don't really think about social media as storytelling, I think because of that, that contract I was talking about, we just assume that this is what people's real lives are. And that Mm -hmm. the snapshot that we see is kind of raw, unfiltered. Oh, this is just stuff happening in my day. Mm -hmm. But if you think about all of every moment, I mean, if you were to document every single moment of your day, and if someone posts one thing about one moment in their day, you've only seen the tiniest little piece of it, which has already been filtered by whatever idea about themselves that they want to put out in the world. And I'm certainly not immune from this. You know, there are days when I think, oh, I better put something out there that I can feel good about. And I want that attention or I want that praise or recognition or acknowledgement that is me putting a storytelling filter on my experience. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how does that affect now that you have really been immersed in that and you're aware that that's happening, how does that impact the way that you parent? That's an excellent question. (laughs) Well, it's always sort of affected me because the, I'm, I'm noticing more the different kinds of storytelling that happens in kids' television. And in my particular interest of self-care, body positivity, being equitable equitable to people of all kinds of diversity, I don't think I've watched a single children's cartoon show that didn't have a fat joke in it. Mm-hmm. And I have to have a lot more conversations with my son about, okay, so it's okay. And I think it was last July, he said to me, I said something about, well, it's because I'm a fat person and that's just, you know, that's how I am. And he's like, oh, you're not fat, which is, you know, that's another kind of story that we hear a lot. And then having that conversation of, oh, okay, this is just a word. It's not, it doesn't mean people are good or bad, but because he's heard that so often in the shows and they don't have to say it necessarily, they often do, but it's just, you know, the bullies are always bigger kids. I don't know if anyone else has ever noticed this. Maybe I'm more attuned to it, but the bullies are never small children. They're large hulking children. Mm -hmm. And my son is as large for his age. And I don't think he's made that connection yet, but I'm very careful when I parent him, when people say, which they do often, oh, he's so tall for his age. Oh, he's such a big kid. Like that's unusual. And I tend to say things like he's exactly as big as he is. (laughs) right he's a kid and I try to try to reverse that storytelling a little bit but yeah those conversations come up and then empathy you know how how do we treat others who are different or feel different you don't even have to put a label on it for them but if even if you just feel different which I think might be a more insidious feeling for kids who are watching YouTube there's just this not rightness and otherness that it's not spoken out loud, but still exists. So how do you express empathy for other people's differences while also acknowledging 
your own. Yeah. And mm-hmm. my my son has long hair, like really long hair. <laughs> I don't know if this is a pandemic project. He's just grown it out. And I have very short hair. So the two of us together, quite a pair. Uh, but we were in Disney World in March and he got escorted out of a men's bathroom mm. because of his long hair. And the, the staff member thought that he was a girl. And so now we have we have conversations about gender and he's being called she all the time. You know, we'll be out at a restaurant. Oh, what does she want? And just acknowledging in some ways that gender is a story right. that you can play with, that you can you can make up yourself. You can you can decide. And um, I guess to answer your question in a real, real way, it changes my parenting, being aware of these things, because I am always trying to share the lesson with my son that life is a story. You get to make it up however you want. And when you can take ownership of a story and feel really good about the story you're telling, then it doesn't matter what other people's stories are because you get to decide. What experiences that you had in your childhood have led you to do the work that you're doing now? Love that question. I was reading weight loss memoir when I was about 10. I started Weight Watchers when I was 10. My, my, uh, my pediatrician suggested that I've always been a very, like my son, I've always been a big kid. And when I was 10, um, my pediatrician suggested to my parents that, um, I go on Weight Watchers and, and, you know, that's what they, that's what they did. And I was on that off and on, I think four times throughout my uh, adolescence and childhood. And at some point my mom had lost, um, over hundred pounds and became a Weight Watchers leader. So at some point she was my leader at Weight Watchers, which is a very interesting experience that uh, yeah, hopefully will be in my next book about this, this storytelling. But what I was looking for in those books were stories of people like me that I could emulate. Like I was doing the work that I suspected a lot of other people are doing, which is whose life can I look to, to show me what's possible? Mm-hmm. So I remember reading, um, I think it's Lynn Redgraves. Uh, this is living. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> that was one of the Weight Watcher books. <laughs> and even though she was an adult and I was a child, I was still reading like, well, what were her experiences? Like, were they like mine? What did she do? And really looking for that how to guide. And I think that's what we look to, to a lot is, is that how do I do this? I need this reassurance that everything's going to be okay. So if I do exactly what you did, assuming that the experience and the story are the same thing, then I'm going to get these results. And I learned from a very early age to read and write weight loss, keeping food journals, reading different inspirational stories, um, posting pictures, even you know when you had to actually take a picture on a film camera to mm-hmm. take the picture and put it, you take a picture of yourself and then you put it on your back, your back of your bedroom door with the pair of pants you're going to wear this summer. And that's how you're going to motivate yourself. <laughs> to is lose that a watchers thing? Or is that just something I think that came up in the uni- Yeah, it's pretty universal, but that is one of the yeah. things, you know, cause, cause we talk about strategies in the meetings, right? It'd be like, well, how do you, I'm going to a party this weekend. How should I handle it? Well, you can drink chicken broth before you go and bring your own food and, you know, <laughs> all of these different things, which then get written down into advice books that kids like me <laughs> would read. And we always had women's magazines um, in my grandma's house. And my mom, you know, every, every house I went to had a steady supply of lose 10 pounds fast. And that's 
over time, you know, that really cemented that story of I'm not good enough until I get to this size, mm-hmm. which I never did. Spoiler alert on this audio podcast. I that was never successful for me. <laughs> I'm going to take a quick break to talk about a brand new resource I have for parents, and then we'll get back to the interview. Everyone knows that homework isn't a kid's favorite thing to do, but wouldn't it be nice to get through the day without meltdowns and power struggles? For a lot of parents that I work with, it starts in the morning as they're trying to get everyone out the door on time and then continues throughout the day as clutter is piling up in every corner of the house. But when it's time to get homework done, that's when the daily arguments really start. And sometimes kids are willing to spend more time arguing than actually getting their work done, which makes it really hard to enjoy the evening as a family or as a parent have time for self-care after everyone goes to bed. So if this sounds familiar, you're certainly not alone. In my time as a pediatric speech pathologist supporting students with diverse learning needs, I have heard these things from a lot of the families that I've worked with. But what a lot of people don't realize is that things like defiance, refusing to do work, avoidance, procrastination, lack of motivation, focus and effort, or just overall underperforming when it comes to homework and schoolwork A lot of these things are symptoms of a bigger problem, and procrastination is often a sign of a skill-based issue that impacts many highly intelligent people, which means if you have a child who does tend to procrastinate, it doesn't mean that they have a behavior problem or that they're lazy. It simply means that they might not have the right skills to know how to get that task done. The good news is that when you address the root cause with the right strategy, it's possible to help kids keep track of their things, pay attention to details, become aware of deadlines, start and finish tasks in a reasonable amount of time, or to be able to sense how long tasks will take so that they can plan ahead. And most importantly, experience some success so they can envision themselves being successful again in the future. That's why I've created the Time Tracking Journal. The Time Tracking Journal is a simple toolkit that walks parents through a set of strategies that will help build time management, motivation, and self-confidence in their kids while they're doing daily tasks like homework and chores. Once you learn how to use a strategy, this is something really simple that you can do in about 10 to 15 minutes a day. And when you sign up for the time tracking journal, not only do you get the actual toolkit, which is a downloadable journal that just walks you through a set of steps to help build these skills in your kids as they're doing their day-to-day tasks. You'll also learn some strategies to help improve time management skills, to help kids understand how done looks, and to help kids get tasks done more efficiently and effectively and build critical thinking skills in the process. To grab the time tracking journal, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. One strategy done consistently can be the difference between constant power struggles and a peaceful, thriving home. 
And that's exactly what I show you how to do with the time tracking journal. So just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal to check it out. As you're, as you're going through this, were you, did you do sports as a kid? Was that something that you enjoyed to do? That's so funny. Another way that the story controlled my life. I did not do sports and no one ever suggested that I might because Mm -hmm. they didn't think I could because of my size, but I was very good at football. I love football. And uh, the boys always wanted me on their team because they would threaten the other team that I would sit on them. But it gave me this, you know, oh, maybe I could be good at this. If somebody gave me half a chance, I remember in, um, freshman year of high school, all of the, I went to an all girls Catholic high school and we were supposed to run a mile. That was our big thing. Well, first of all, we had plaid flannel gym shorts and they did not have a size that fit me. So I had these two short shorts and I started running the mile and the gym teacher pulled me aside and she said, I'll give you a pass on this one. I know you can't do it. Mm. And that has haunted me for had, I say it had, it did haunt me for years. And I just, Now that was a new story that I believe that I couldn't do this, that this wasn't a part of my life. Spoiler alert. You've run more than a mile since then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, that's a big place in the world where we know each other, you know, commonalities as, as runners. And I really had to question what stories have I been listening to that have affected my real actual life. And it was after I had my son that I, felt more motivated to be a better, better model for him, but not in the way that a lot of people think. They think, oh, you took up running because you wanted to get healthy because you wanted to lose weight. No, I took up running because I wanted to model for him what doing the impossible could look like. Mm-hmm. And to show him, even though he's a little baby in the jogging stroller, <laughs> that um, you don't have to believe the things that people say about you. And I, it was such a wonderful moment. I did some of the races at Disney a couple of years ago and he was, he would have been four, I think at the time. Mm -hmm. And to see him out on the course cheering me on, Oh, I did it. Now he's going to know the marathon at Disney. I did. I was too slow. I got pulled off the course. I did the, the consecutive races, five half a marathon. And I did them all, except I got pulled the halfway through the marathon because I was just too slow. I could have kept going. And so I'm training for that again, because just because well, I didn't get it that one time. <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't think I would do that. <laughs> the, the, the three consecutive, I would pick one, but I know that, I know that people really get into that, but yeah, I've, I've done longer rate. I've done half marathons. I haven't done a full uh, marathon yet, but I'm a leader in our running community. I, mm-hmm. I am program director for uh, one of our, which actually the um, it was a women only running program. It's going to be a gender inclusive beginner program because it's really important to me to share that message and all the things that I do and help people who might not have thought they could run mm-hmm. um, to at least get started and to find community in that. So I've been doing a lot of that, and I, I you know, if I had believed that it wasn't something I could do. I definitely wouldn't be here doing this work. And I think that's always the first step is questioning. Is this a story that I believe, or is it something that someone else said? And knowing where all those motivations are, like 
advertising and political gain and all of those motives that try to control people. Like it makes me very uncomfortable to know that people are out there basing their lives on stories that have been told to them for someone else's personal gain. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the interesting thing is with those running programs, and, and I don't know if we're, I know we were talking about the specific one that we were in together, but a lot of times when I would say, hey, I'm, I'm in this running group and we're opening registration and people would sometimes be like, oh, I'm, I'm not fast enough to do something like that. Or I'm, it, a lot of times they, they don't join because it's not that they don't think the program is good, it's that they don't believe that they can do it themselves. It's more about what they are telling themselves about themselves that is keeping them from doing it. And I just wonder how long, where did that come from? You know, who told them that story and how long has it been going on? Yeah. And a lot of these stories, especially the, the fat phobic ones, they hurt us all. They're not just something that affect people my size and bigger, you know, it's, and, and I remember being in the program with you and we've actually changed the way, well, I've changed, mm -hmm. <laughs> I've changed the way that I actually do the pace groups because it was separating people in a way that I didn't think was useful. It was just a continuation of, oh, well, I can't run with Karen because she's way up there and I can never be, I'm just in the back of the pack. I'm the slow one. I'm the, and so you miss a lot of great opportunities to connect with people because yeah. you have this idea that mm -hmm. they're better than you based on this, the way that the sport is yeah, based on this one thing. And, and what's the reason for that? And, you know, if you had an injury or if you were struggling or if you, you know, whatever your pace is, if that was a lot slower and you were upset about that, I bet you didn't get a lot of space to say, this is upsetting to me. This isn't what I'm used to because there would be this like, oh, well, you're whatever kind of way, you know, you're fast enough already, or you're healthy enough already. No, this is really important to me. So we've got, you can't assume anything by looking at someone. Yeah. Yeah. I would get, um, what's wrong with you? Like what's wrong? Why aren't you over there? <laughs> you know, people get, oh. they label you and they're like, this person should be here and this person should be here. And sometimes it, um, kind of perpetuates the story that you have about where you think you should be. And it doesn't just happen in running. I think it happens in other sports. And I just wonder, you know, you wonder how early that starts. I remember you were talking about gym class and, you know, I've, I've always from an early age, I did sports, but I was not particularly good at the team sports, you know, running, swimming stuff that you can just kind of get in the zone and go. And you don't have to be, you know, you don't have balls flying at your face and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I did not do well in gym class. And I remember that they would do this thing where it was like, okay, team captains. And then the team captain would pick one at a time who they want on the team. Me and these three other girls were always without fail. The last ones picked always oh. like I have the, such trauma. Like I'm one of the the not good people. And it would always be the same people that were like, this is the person you want on your team. And, mm -hmm. and again, the pecking order. And it started really early on. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes you think, <laughs> I guess I can't. Yeah. Why try? Because I can't do it. Yeah, that's just so 
sad. And I've, I've certainly caught myself in it just thinking about myself and my kid. You know, mm-hmm. he loves climbing, loves it, loves bouldering, climbing trees. That's the monkey bars, the playground. Like he loves all of that. And I don't think I would have guessed that that would be something that he's interested in because of his size. And it's like, oh, well, you need a lot of upper body strength for that. Well, he's getting it because he's going out and climbing. <laughs> that's, right. That's how yeah. that works. Well, it's funny how it's like, oh, you need to be strong. Well, how do you get strong? You do the thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And that too, you know, he, I remember him saying that there were kids in his class that were faster. You know, I'm never going to be that fast. I'm never going to catch up. Well, maybe not. And just be honest about it. Like you might, you might not. You could try <laughs> or you could find something that you're really good at and you can bolt, make, maybe you need a fast person on the superhero team. And maybe you need somebody who can scale tall buildings. Mm -hmm. It takes all kinds. Yeah. I think that it's, it is nice now that kids have every generation, they have more options as far as things they can do. So that's nice. I think my mom always talks about how she, like, if if you were a girl, you did cheerleading and Mm. nothing against cheerleading. Like the people who do competitive cheerleading are awesome athletes, but that was it. It was that or or nothing else. And so yeah. that was the only option. There weren't these other things. And and then we had more options and now our kids have more options. And so that's nice, I think. <laughs> yeah. My mom loves to tell the story about she signed me up for a park district basketball thing. And when I got there, the enrollment must have been low because it was only boys and it was four or five boys and me. And she tried to reassure me and say, you know, we don't have to stay. We can go home. And I was adamant. No, I came to play. I'm not, it was just a, you know, wreck kind of thing. I don't even think it was a whole season. It might've just been that afternoon, but still she, she talks all the time about how proud she was of me to just stick it out and hold my own, probably because of the messages that she got about, oh, you know, girls should play on girls teams or girls can't play basketball if they're the only one there. And mm-hmm. I hope that that did a little bit to change her heart and mind <laughs> about what would be possible. Yeah. Or yours as well. <laughs> yeah. And I think at that time I didn't, it was just, it was so logical to me. No, we're, we're just going to play. I didn't, I didn't re- recognize the gender issue at all. Um, mm-hmm. But at some point, you know, I did my, my all girl Catholic school was a volleyball school. And that was, you know, if you didn't do volleyball, then you were kind of, you're kind of on a, a lower rung, but yeah, sports get really, um, prioritized as a, as an outward sign of capability and strength and a lot of interpersonal qualities, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're saying to kids, some sports are for you and some aren't like in your case, you know, the, you, your personality and your interest and skill is more suited to solo sports. So mm-hmm. go do that. If you're kept from that, then you're never going to find that potential. Right. Since we're on the topic of sports and the messages that are being sent in movies and the media, I wanted to talk about Brittany runs a marathon. Yeah, let's do it. Thoughts <laughs> on that. Cause I know that you, I know that you wrote at least one article about that and it was runner's world. What, right. Yeah. That was a, that was a big deal. 
Yeah, it is a big deal. Um, so if you've never if you've never seen the movie, Brittany Runs a Marathon is based on autobiographical story or a biographical story because I don't think the person it's about Brittany. I don't think she actually wrote anything. It was her friend who said, "Hey, this is an inspiring story. I want to write this movie about it." So it's it's in many ways a classic before and after sports success story. Mm-hmm. And they've framed it as kind of a body positive thing because, oh, she doesn't lose a lot of weight and it's not about weight loss. That's what everybody told me. If you read the comment section, that's all it is. <laughs> no, that's not all it is. But comment section on your post or on your on the, Yeah, on the article. It's, it wasn't about weight loss. It wasn't about weight loss. It was about her relationship to herself. Well, yes and no. It's the same kind of story. It's this person is sad and broken and lonely. And I think it just broken up with a boyfriend and was really down in the dumps, decides to take up running, you know, regular, it's a kind of a romantic comedy. So romantic comedy complications ensue. And then she finds herself and, you know, runs the marathon. It's right there in the title. So I don't think it's a spoiler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What I wrote about it wasn't that it's not an individual story that I have a problem with. I'm never going to tell anybody that, oh, that wasn't okay that you had this before and after or this triumph for, you know, it was more about, you know, where are the other stories that are missing here? And the title of the article is what Brittany runs a marathon gets wrong about running while fat. And that's really the story that I was hoping the movie would capture because if it's not about weight loss and she does show up to all these races as in a bigger body, there are some real limitations there that I've certainly come up against. You know, they don't have the race t-shirt in your size. They close the course. You know, if you are at the back of the pack, kind of slower pace, they'll close the course and take down the water stop before you get there. Nobody's there at the finish line. Everybody's packed up. Um, and the, even the, if you're doing a running training, the pace usually caps out at about 12 or 13 minutes per mile. Mm-hmm. Where was her struggle in that? She just sort of showed up And the, there's a scene where she's trying to run around a block, which is a classic fat person running story. Like how humiliating it is that she can't run the block. She's just sweating. She's just buckets of sweat when she gets back, sweating, sweating, sweating gross. And that's the impression that we're supposed to get is that she's gross because she tried to run around the block and couldn't because she's slow and fat. And I think she goes to get ice cream or something after. Yeah. But then the marathon day happens. She doesn't sweat at all. She's just dry. She's got a little glow around the temples <laughs> and, you know, on the arms of her shirt. But <sighs> She's that was my favorite. Grown so much. <laughs> that was my favorite part, not of the movie, but of the article that you pointed that out. Because it reminded me of the Instagram pe- people who like they post a picture of themselves working out at the gym with makeup and their hair done. I don't yeah. look like that when I work out. <laughs> For no, real, and a workout. If you did, it was because you knew you'd be taking a picture later. <laughs> it all comes together like that. And I just, I, what I wish for everyone is that we could make choices about our lives outside of that story. If there are people who want to wear makeup to the gym, I love to watch like a, like, a, I don't know, let's call it reps and red lips. And like, we do makeup and we work out and we, you know, that really suspends the story of, and I think for fitness too, it's like, you have to be very serious. Fitness is serious. You work hard, you are sweating. And the difference between, you know, and I'm, 
I say fat people, it's kind of a metaphor for anybody that's considered not an athlete. So older mm-hmm. folks, disabled folks, fat people, uh, gender nonconforming people, like weirdos, right? And I think it's one of those we know when we see it. We know who the weirdos are because we know what good fit people look like and they're the fitness models. And all the weirdos, when they're sweating, it's because they're struggling or because it's too hard or they're just gross to begin with. And so that's what that is. But sweat on appropriately fit people, that's a sign of hard work, determination, and they're really getting at it. They're disciplined. It's like, you have the same activity. You have people moving their bodies and sweating, but -hmm. they mean two different things completely because of the idea we have about who is or who is not allowed to do that activity. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole thing about people being allowed. I think it is, it comes from both sides where it, it comes from the person who is running the activity, making people feel like they are or aren't welcome. And then the people who are accepting that and choosing to bow out just because of somebody who said something to them or whatever. Yeah. And I did, um, I haven't raced in a little while because pandemic, um, yeah. <laughs> but I went yeah. back to my favorite race this, this a couple weeks ago yep. and I, I started having those feelings of, Oh, I don't look like anybody here. Uh, maybe this was a terrible idea. And I was in my head going, I'm going to be the last one. This is going to be embarrassing when I have to cross the finish line last thing. Uh, just this very real feeling of weirdness. And I think that there's, there's a way that people who already look like they belong in an activity can help make that environment more inclusive and welcoming just by standing up for the, the weirdos (laughs) and make it a more like, if you notice, I'm going to use the t-shirt size for the races, but t-shirts are purchased for all kinds of different activities. Mm -hmm. If you're organizing something, maybe don't do a t-shirt, maybe do like a water bottle thingy or, you know, something that's not size based. So people can, you don't have to worry about that. Or if it is a shirt, like make sure you have enough in extended sizes for um, people or even paying attention to things like if you're in a doctor's office or a store and you notice that the aisles are really crammed together, how would a person who uses a wheelchair get through here and Mm -hmm. maybe mention, Hey, you know, I'm not sure that this, there's enough space here. If you have a customer who uses a wheelchair, those are little things. And and it depends on who you are and what kind of, you know, say power, like it's a bad thing, but, you know, I think, I think we can all recognize places where we have a little more authority than other people might. Mm-hmm. And just makes make some of those comments, you know, just yeah. let people know that that's that's on your mind. That's going to go a heck of a lot farther if you said something to a race director than if I said, "Hey, what about extended sizes?" And that's th- that is the shadow power of the story, right? That that some people's voices are heard more often and with more authority than others. And as long as that's the case, then let's use it to put me out of a job. So I don't have to keep talking about how storytelling <laughs> keeps us from living our best lives. <laughs> well, that in, I think just numbers, you know, if enough people say something, every person who says something can help. I am curious from what you know about, about storytelling in your research, how do you think people who number one parents 
and teachers, medical professionals. So people who are around kids, working with kids, how can they help? And this is kind of an extension of what you just talked about. So those people who are in leadership positions, when they are responsible for holding an event for kids, some kind of sporting activity or really any activity, I mean, what can they do? I love this question. Thank you so much for asking it. <laughs> I want to say first that I think that everyone is doing the best they can mm-hmm. and everyone is, I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I don't think anyone is out there trying to exclude people or to make anyone feel bad. It's just that these stories about difference and normalcy are so ingrained into our lives that we often just don't recognize them. And once we start recognizing it, it's a lot easier to change. We can, we can change that story. So I think that if, you know, it's kind of twofold, like if, if you are a parent or an educator working with kids directly, not making assumptions, and I'm going to use, you know, there, there's certainly body considerations, either gender, race, uh, ability, body size, that kind of thing, not making assumptions about what kids can or cannot do or are or not interested in. Mm-hmm. And some of that can just be a rephrasing. It's something like if you're in a lunchroom somewhere, not commenting on what kids are eating, because you don't know. I think about a kid who maybe is dealing with uh, food insecurity at home and they're eating a lot at lunch. And if that's a kid's a bigger kid and you say, oh, you're eating a lot for lunch today, but you don't know what they're dealing with at home, that's going to hit a lot differently. You may not even think to say it to a smaller child. You know, or maybe you would, maybe, maybe that is the same thing. You know, maybe there's an eating disorder issue or sensory issues that, that aren't being addressed. You know, there's lots of things going on where those assumptions are more damaging than helpful to, to point these things out. Mm-hmm. And, and then for hosting events or anything where there are lots of kids that you may or may not have direct responsibility for, it is pretty similar. It's, it's taking into consideration, you know, what kinds of needs do we have? And I think sensory and, you know, spectrum issues are things that people are starting to think about. How loud is the music in the space? Are there places for kids to kind of move away from the activity if it's getting to be overwhelming? Mm -hmm. Um, Mobility issues, you know, wheelchair accessibility, even just like kids who, who just move in different ways, you know, they might just need some more space to be able to do that where they're going to feel sort of confined. Um, And yeah, just, just thinking about, and I kind of, I, it's sort of a habit now. So I do it where I kind of run through some of those more, the stories that I'm aware of, right? Differences in race, class, gender, ability, financial situation. Like when I talk about kids' homes, I don't assume they live in a house. Mm-hmm. They may live in an apartment or, you know, they may have a different family configuration and just it's not that you have to account for every one of those situations, but to be transparent about how you are welcoming all kids in that space, in that activity. And then if parents or kids have different needs, they can communicate that, that with you. But it's so welcoming as a weirdo to know that the organizers are open to feedback and open to, even if I said about someone else, like, hey, are we going to provide... ASL interpretation for this event, because 
or, you know, have you, have you asked on the registration form, does anyone need an ASL interpreter, that kind of thing. And those are small ways that we can make changes that really have a big impact on everyone's experience. Yeah. Or I wonder if there's just a place that you can go where, where you make it clear where people can give that feedback. Cause sometimes people yeah. don't know who to talk to about that. Yeah. And just when I do registration forms, I'll do what I know. So if I know we're going to have an ASL interpreter, I'll say that if I am open to different kinds of things or dietary restrictions, that might be another thing that I'll say, okay, we're going to have a vegetarian option, a vegan option, gluten-free, that kind of thing for additional accommodation needs or for, you know, accommodation is makes it a little bit clinical, but you could even say something like if there's something that we can do to make your family's experience more comfortable, here's how to get a hold of us. And yeah. and yeah, leaving that open communicates a lot about having to do a lot of extra labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that would be, that's good. And I can think of so many times that all of these things that you're saying where I, you know, you, you they just don't occur to you if you haven't been paying attention to those things. So yeah. I think being aware and open is really important. I could, I think we could go on, <laughs> go on for a long time, but I think this is a good place to, to wrap up, but I wanted to, you, you have so many different, different things that you've written. And I know you have a blog and a TEDx talk. So where can people go to learn more about you or what you do? That's a good thing. I would love that. Please come hang out with me in all of the internet places where I am. Yes. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Kate Brown. And I do a fair a number of posts um, about these kinds of issues. You can also visit my website, writespeakrepeat.com. And then I have all of links to all of my articles, to my Medium page, my TED Talk, you know, anything. And I, I do talk a, a lot about um, these issues and all the different things. You could even get to my dissertation if you really wanted to read it. I got a link to that too. Um, working on turning that into a book. So, pretty, yeah. or I should say another book. I think the dissertation gets a little lost in the <laughs> major life event accomplishments, but I'm really excited. I stepped away from this work for a little while because I just, it's, it's pretty taxing, you know, mm-hmm. to, to read the stories and put, and I am a memoirist. So I, I write and speak a lot about my own experiences with all of this. And uh, sometimes it can be just a little much, but I'm coming back to it because I think given all of this pandemic 15 panic and the ways that weight loss is being repackaged as a health commodity, mm-hmm. I think that this still has some charge and there's, there's good work worth doing still. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for, for being on the show. Thanks, Karen. It's been my absolute pleasure. Just a couple housekeeping things before we wrap up. First, don't forget to check out the time tracking journal. If you want a tool to help you get through homework and chores with ease without nagging or bribes. 
if you struggle to get your kids to be independent with some of those day-to-day tasks that they may not like to do, but need to learn how to do in order to be independent people one day. And if you want to just have peace of mind that you're number one, helping them build the skills now that they need to eventually be successful adults one day. And Number two, a more immediate need to help you get through the day and retain your sanity at the same time. So to learn a simple set of strategies and get a simple tool that's going to help build the skills your kids need in order to be independent and organized and keep track of their assignments, just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Next, I wanted to remind you that it helps us so much if you leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple. All you need to do is just search for Are They 18 Yet? And you can leave us a review. There's usually a big purple button that you have to click if you're on Apple that will allow you to leave a review. So that helps us to get the show in front of more people who need it. And also, I may give you a shout out on a later episode. I wanted to wrap up with our listener shout out. This one comes from LMAG71. They say, enjoying these podcasts so much so far, very helpful and relatable to people in my personal life and in the workplace. Look forward to more. Thank you so much for your review. We certainly appreciate it. This concludes episode 12 of Are They 18 Yet? I'm your host, Dr. Karen, and I'll see you in episode 13. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. 
Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.